Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus on Friday the 25th of June. I'm Bernard Hickey and this is for the Kaka. Today I'm going to talk about the spatial plan in Wellington. For those not from Wellington, essentially it's a bit like the unitary plan debate that Auckland had in 2016. A contest between NIMBYs and the next generation. What happens to all of those villas and houses built single storey standalone houses built in the inner suburbs close to our biggest cities. So we're talking in Auckland of course about Parnell and Ponsonby and Graylin and Mount Eden and Epsom and uh, all of those uh, suburbs on the Isthmus. And in Wellington we're talking about Mount Cook, Mount Victoria, Thorndon, uh, those sorts of areas. If we're going to build enough small, affordable, close houses the next generation so that they can jump onto a bus or use a bike or walk to work or wherever they need to be and so that we can get our carbon emissions down to net zero by 2050 and try and reduce the obscene house price to income multiples which are now over 10 in many places and our awful uh, rental affordability we now have the worst rental affordability in the OECD if we're going to solve these problems, we have to make sure lots and lots of high quality, medium density houses are built close to our cities and our main transport nodes. This is what the battle is about. In Auckland, uh, at least initially, um, the NIMBYs won. They blocked um, the much more free, more dense version of the unitary plan in a vote in February 2016. Understandably, the government at the time, under John Key and Bill English, effectively nudged, cajoled, bullied the centre-right councillors on the Auckland Council to eventually agree to a unitary plan, albeit with many of the key character areas in Mount Eden, Parnell, Remuera, Ponsonby, Hoon Bay and Greylin carved out so that those villas would not be changed or removed. So it was a partial victory for those wanting a lot more housing built in Auckland. And we have seen more of these three, four-storey apartment blocks built in Auckland. But again, not nearly enough, given the amount of population growth we've had over the last 20 years. Now the debates moved to Wellington. And last night, we had this big clash, really, again, between the NIMBYs and the young, who are trying to, trying to uh, get as many houses built as possible. And so clause by clause, we had a series of votes in the Wellington Council last night about certain things, including the ability to build high-rises in the CBD in Wellington. Special case, of course, in Wellington, we've got a few earthquakes. But of course, you can build them, and they do stay up if you build them properly. And uh, the council, many on the council uh, were, were uh, opposed to this because of um, some of the uh, issues that others with apartment buildings there will have with not in my backyard. And the young, of course, wanted as many houses, apartments, as high as possible, as often as possible in the CBD because that's where people can walk to work and do all the things that are great about Wellington. Well, uh, the council decided against having those high buildings However, there was a partial victory for the uh, the young later on in the evening uh, when a couple of clauses around um, building high-density houses around train stations managed to get through. So it was a partial victory. And there will be some 
in the Yimby Brigade, yes, in my backyard, who'll be quite happy after last night's um, results, which in many ways um, clawed things back from a major defeat because the NIMBYs managed to gut in the initial version of the spatial plan to remove many of the so-called character areas um, around the centre of town. So there'll be a few sighs of relief. But the basic problem remains, which is that councils and the government refuse to provide the infrastructure necessary for these sorts of medium density houses, for the public transport lines and the changes in road usage that are required to get to affordable housing and carbon zero by 2050. Best example is that right now in Wellington there are two sets of townhouses being built on land that really should have uh, high-rise apartments on it. And the reason was the developers were told by council officials that council could not afford the beefed-up infrastructure required for all those people to live in the high-rises. So instead of having uh, 700 or 900 people on those each of those bits of land, we're going to have more like 200. This is a great example of how Council debt limits and government debt limits are restricting uh, um, governments and councils from investing in that infrastructure necessary to get those houses built. I don't think people really understand uh, how much of a suffocating, restricting, strangulating factor the Public Finance Act is. For those who don't know, back in 1989, New Zealand passed the Public Finance Act, which hardly anyone talks about but completely dominates the way that the government in Wellington and, of course, councils around the country operate. In a high population growth environment, you need to build lots of infrastructure for housing and public transport and commercial and industrial uh, uh, houses and buildings, not to mention all of the cars and buses and trains and things you need. But the Public Finance Act was formed and written and agreed by both sides of politics in 1989 when New Zealand was a way different place. Firstly, we expected basically flat population growth. We couldn't imagine anyone would want to come and live here and everyone expected ageing populations to see our population fall or at least be stable. And therefore you didn't need to spend lots of money on infrastructure. There was a view back then too that spending money on infrastructure was wasteful, that the government wasn't very good at it, that it was paternalistic, that it was central government interfering in things and building things that were damaging to the environment and making life difficult for everyone, in part because it meant that taxes were very high. At that point, the aim was to reduce taxes, to reduce the size of government. It ended up getting down to about 30% of GDP, and that's where it's pretty much stayed ever since, in part because of this Public Finance Act, which by specifying that governments must run surpluses over the cycle and keep prudent levels of debt low, have effectively frozen the size of government in time at 30%. Up until a couple of years ago, we essentially had a de facto policy, although it's not written in the law, that government debt had to be 20% of GDP. Now, how is this expressed in restricting supply? couple of ways. Firstly, the government itself funds a lot of this infrastructure, particularly through NZTA, and has a major impact on what's happening with public transport. 
So just just in the last two or three weeks, NZTA has sent directives to councils saying that they should reduce their public spending plans because of blowouts and various roading projects around the country and because of limits that the NZTA has on its own spending, partly due to the way that its funding is limited by the, the taxes it receives from road users um, through petrol levies and road user charges. Uh, there's another problem there, of course, in the long run, if we move to electric cars, <laughs> the funding for our public transport system will dry up. Well, that's for another day. But what it means is that um, when budgets are under pressure, well, they seem to be under pressure, NZTA directs councils to stop spending. And just this morning, the New Zealand Herald is reporting that uh, Auckland Transport has ordered a two-year delay in a busway in eastern Auckland. Can you imagine it? We're in a climate emergency. We need desperate amounts of housing. And a busway, which has proved very successful in the North Shore, would be just the ticket. And it's going to be delayed for two years because of decisions made essentially driven by the Public Finance Act. And the government, through NZTA, have done this. And the Auckland Council has done it as well. So there's two sides to this story. Auckland Council has been very keen to keep its double A+. Plus credit rating to keep interest rates low. The big picture here is that the Public Finance Act was designed in 1989 when the New Zealand government mostly borrowed in foreign currencies with floating interest rates. The reason that's important is that when there's some financial crisis or when people lose confidence in New Zealand or the New Zealand dollar slumps sharply, and that's generally what happens when someone loses confidence in you, that essentially means uh, we have a blowout in interest costs immediately because in New Zealand dollar terms, suddenly you have to spend more just to pay the interest and usually the interest rate goes up sharply at the same time. So very quickly, you're basically broke. However, since 1989, in fact, pretty much from uh, the late 90s onwards and through the 2000s and definitely now, the New Zealand government raises debt in New Zealand dollars and it does, does it with fixed interest securities. That means that the interest rate is fixed right at the start when the government borrows the money. So if interest rates change, that doesn't change during the, mature, during the, the life of the bond. And if it's a 10, 20 year bond, you could have interest rates blow out all over the place and it doesn't affect the money that the government has to pay. Also, because it's a New Zealand dollar, it doesn't matter what the New Zealand dollar does. It's being paid in New Zealand dollars to... Uh, people who hold those bonds. So you're essentially transferring the New Zealand dollar and the interest rate risk to the investors, which of course, almost half of them are now New Zealand institutions. So we're talking about New Zealand Superfund, ACC, and of course, all those KiwiSaver funds. So this fear about being cut off from financial markets is out of date. And it is restricting our ability to deal with these two crises, which are building up huge liabilities for the Crown and for society into the, the, the far future. Now, the Public Finance Act actually does include clauses which say you need to take into account your net worth. Now, net worth essentially is a balance sheet term referring to what your future assets and future liabilities are. It's the balance sheet approach. If you're an actuary, what you do is work out what your costs are going to be in the long run and then bring that forward into a net present value form of your assets and liabilities. At the moment, we are not pricing in the liabilities of continuing to pump carbon out. 
which of course in future we will have to buy carbon credits from uh, carbon credits for in the international markets if we're going to be able to uh, meet our climate um, uh, uh, obligations also if we don't solve this housing affordability crisis we're going to have an entire generation who are unhealthy unproductive in prison having problems with education having all sorts of health problems you want to know how much it costs for someone to turn up at A&E with a chest infection if they to stay in hospital tens of thousands of dollars not to mention of course the well-being effects which are enormous for these families and these kids who are essentially uh, handicapped right from the start if they live in a rental property particularly a private rental where at the moment 40 percent of those kids growing up in those private rentals are having problems with cold and moldy homes and of course their parents are dealing with the least affordable rentals in the entire world so that's a liability that's being built up but unpriced on our balance sheet so either the public finance act needs to be changed to make clear that we need to invest in infrastructure and our people to reduce our long-term liabilities or we reinterpret the current public finance act to properly assess the net worth of the crown's balance sheet in terms of what our future assets and liabilities are those assets should be the productivity of our people they should be the potential liabilities of paying out enormous carbon credit payments and they should be uh, the well-being of all of our kids who at the moment are growing up in unhealthy and unaffordable houses are having to jump in cars and drive for hours and unless these changes are made to the public finance act or the way we interpret it and changes are made to the way that we build our houses and arrange our public transport we're not going to achieve anything like those uh, carbon zero and affordable housing uh, things that we need so that's um, a bit of a, a longer look at what's happening with the uh, um, spatial plan elsewhere today uh, keep an eye out on the COVID-19 outbreak in New South Wales more cases overnight and our travel pause was extended by 12 days late last night in China and in Hong Kong, the Apple Daily, uh, one of those publications critical of the Chinese government, was shut down overnight. It put out its last uh, episode, if you like, its last um, paper. Huge cues for that paper. Again, part of the story around China's crackdown on dissent and its extension of its approach to running the world out into the world. And, of course, that's resulted um, in an interesting crossover of concerns Overnight, the U.S. government has uh, uh, banned some imports of solar products from the Xinjiang province. Remember, Xinjiang is the place where China has imprisoned millions of Uyghurs and is persecuting them. And uh, there is a push around to start to stop buying things from that province. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on who you are, that province is one of the major areas for producing solar panels and of course being unable to buy from there will effectively push up the price of solar panels and make it more difficult to achieve our climate change aims also elsewhere um, keep an eye out for uh, what's hap happening uh, of course with the COVID-19 stuff we'll find out later today or tomorrow 
whether there has been any community transmission in Wellington. And um, and also watch out for councils who are very keen to get congestion charges, again, to try and solve their revenue problems to deal with their self-imposed debt limits. Westpac, uh, big news yesterday in the financial world, Westpac Australia decided not to sell Westpac New Zealand, a unit worth about $10 billion that could have been floated here. Turns out they did the research and it wouldn't make sense to get rid of um, a license to print money. And um, interesting news overseas in Wales, where the Welsh government has suspended all future road building plans to try and get to zero emissions. And the Otago Regional Council has just announced a 75% increase in its general rate next year. Again, part of this problem where the government is not helping councils enough. Councils have their own debt limits, and so they push that through in higher rates increases. The problem here, of course, is it risks a massive political backlash as anti-rates increase campaigners get onto council and block new housing supply because what they actually want is not much change near them and certainly no new people near them, even though central, the central government and many in business want our population to grow and are uh, awarding those visas for people to come in and live. Hey, uh, that was a slightly longer um, dawn chorus this morning because I think it's important what's going on with the spatial plan. I thought it'd be worth going into the background of it. It is Friday, the 25th of June. I'm Bernard Hickey with the dawn chorus on the Kaka. <laughs> 